longer than you do. Amen? All right. Well, welcome to week five of what's the name of this series? I think we can say it a little more attitude. Let's say it again. What's the name of this series? Hi. Oh, I like it. Somehow over there gave me a great hi-ya. Um, if you're wondering what in the world is that, no, it's not some karate move. No, it's not what you say. It is derived from the Greek word for ver, uh, revive, hayan. Here's what it means. To live, to cause to live, to stir up or rekindle as a fire, to recover from a state of neglect, obscurity, or depression, to refresh with joy or hope. And man, does our country need some refreshing and reviving. That's what this entire series has been about, is refreshing, reviving, uh, reviving and stirring up the passion for God that used to be there. Uh, it's telling me we're discovering our identity because so many times life hits you and you've got so many people telling you who you are that you lose sight of who God says you are. And rediscovering that identity. Last week we talked about reviving the supernatural. In fact, uh, I got so many comments on the illustration with the bottled water and the wine that I thought I'm just going to bring that bottle of wine out here, set it up, and make people. It'll keep people captivated at least for the time being. Uh, but how you don't get from here to there unless God does super, something supernatural in you. And we looked at that and God doing something uh, about that. But today, can I tell you, I'm excited and I am pumped up. Thank you. Thank you, Bradley. Thank you. Y'all you know, was just pity woos. Bradley gave me a real woo. Here's why. Maybe I need to tell you why I'm pumped up. Man, I'm pumped up not because the fast is over, uh, although I am excited about that. Uh, I'm not pumped up because it's Super Bowl Sunday. Really, I've got a team I'm rooting for, but it, uh, I have no dog in the hunt. You know, it's not my favorite team that's playing. Uh, my favorite team hasn't been good for a while, so we won't even mention that. Uh, so, uh, and I'm not talking about the Tennessee Vols. We all know that. We're talking about professional. Uh, but I'm not pumped because it's my granddaughter Juno's birthday party today where I'm going to get to go down and watch her be excited about stuff that I really don't care about. But she's excited, so I'm excited for her. What I'm pumped and excited about is this. In the 9 a.m., the 11 a.m., I sit there, sit in the back, and I watch their worship team lead. I watch their musicians play. I, I, our sound guys, their lights, their media. I watch their greeters and ushers do what they do every Sunday. WB Kids and Nursery, our security team. And I thought, man, we have got so much potential in this church. And then when I stand up here and I look out over the crowd, I think, I am staring at a vast, untapped potential in this place. So much potential, but it's going untapped. We're not tapping into it. And I'm excited. I'm excited because last week at our New to the Bar lunch, the people that had come in and said, I want to I sign up, be part of this. So much potential in there. And, and I look around the room, and I, I'm excited about the potential I see, uh, the abilities, the talents, the, uh, the giftings, the, the, the heart that, that I believe has the full potential to turn Ray, Megs, McMinn, Rome County's upside down for Jesus. It's here. 
I'm, come on, I'm talking about you in case you're wondering. The potential in this room. And I can tell some of you don't really believe you have that potential. You're like, Kelly, come on. I just showed up here this Sunday morning. And there's some of you that just showed up here today uh, to get somebody off your back. I'm just going to go so they'll quit asking me. And God's telling you you're here because I'm about to make you aware of some untapped potential inside of you. So I'm going to do the preacher thing that I normally don't do. And I want you to look at your neighbor. And with attitude, I want you to say, there is greatness inside of you. Tell them. Listen, I didn't even believe it. Much less the person sitting beside you didn't believe it. I need, Jackie's like, listen, I'm just going to put my head down. Somebody talk to me. Uh, hey, I, we're going to try it again. And I want you, I mean, I want you to say it with some veracity. And I want them to know you mean it. Say it. There is so much greatness in you. Danny, what happened? I didn't even see you talk, man. There's so much greatness in you, Danny. So much. What Danny was reminded of is CR when we read Scripture together. It's like we're reading a chain of Scripture. This person stars. This person, it's like, no, we can never get together, so we're going to try it together. I'll say it, then you say it. There is so much greatness in you. Poor Glenn. Not a rhythm, not a rhythm in his body. I know there's greatness in you, though, buddy. Greatness in you. Now that you're pumped up with me, have you ever felt like you've got these dreams, these goals, these aspirations of things you think maybe think God placed them there, but you don't have the ability and the talent to accomplish them? Come on. Come on. Ever felt like this? God, you've given me all this talent. You've given me this ability to do these things, or I mean these goals to do these things, but talent-wise, uh, you left me out. You didn't give me anything to accomplish these. Come on. Anybody ever felt like that? Like you've got a million-dollar dream but an overdraft bank account. And now, oh, now I'm talking to you. Uh, no, I'm not starting to go there. But you've you got these dreams. Maybe you even feel a little bit like these people. If I were the king of the fools, not queen, not duke, not prince, all my regal robes of rust would be a satin, not cotton, not chintz. I command everything be a fish or fall with roof, roof, and the royal girl, roof. Oh. <laughs> Is a story
eyes, I look into your eyes. I tell you what I see. Girl, you're the one I'm gonna keep in my dreams. I wanna hold you close. Give you everything, girl, I'm gonna let you know. You're gonna be wearing my diamond ring. I wanna keep you in my heart. Show you what I mean. Girl, you're the one I've been seeing in my dreams. You wanna hear the chorus? No, I couldn't hear anymore. Okay. Let's stop there. Cause that's enough. Cole, did you send in an audition tape? I could have swore that was you there at the end. When I look at my dreams. I think it was Cole. But you've, you've got these, they've all got these aspirations and they want to entertain. They want to be a singer, but nobody's been honest enough to tell them. You may want to go in a different direction. But we feel like that. We've got these dreams. We've got these aspirations. But it seems like our talent and our dreams, there's this disconnect. Like, I would love to play basketball like Zion Williams. Would love to. No, I don't. Don't lie to me. I, I've got this thing called white man's disease that does not allow me to play like that. I would love to preach like T.D. Jakes. But again, white man's disease. It's, I would love to. But sometimes your talent doesn't line up with what you want to do. But I'm convinced of this. No matter where you are at in life, whether it's middle school or you're late into retirement, no matter how much, how little talent or how much, much talent you think you have or don't have, no matter where you grew up, how you grew up, whether you grew up in a church house or a crack house, whether you grew up believing or not believing, whether you think you've got it all or you think you don't have anything, I'm com completely convinced of this. There is so much untapped potential God has placed inside of you. It's there. It's there just waiting to get out. I'm convinced of that. Think about this. Think about Jesus' starting lineup. The 12 men he chose to, to start out the ministry with. I mean, when you read it, did you know this? That Because when we picture the disciples, we picture 30, 40-year-old men, grown men. Did you know when you do the studying on these, all of them with the exception of one was somewhere between the ages of 15 to 18 years old? How, how, how do you know? There was only one that was over that, and that was Peter. How do we know that? Because at the age of 18, that's when you, you, you get a wife, you get married. And, and so Peter was the only one that was married, which may explain why he was so mouthy. Uh, so, come on now. That's funny now. Uh, but but here, here's the thing. At 15, your ed as a Jewish child, your education ended at 15. Unless... You were deemed by a rabbi or a teacher, hey, I would like to bring them underneath my wing and, and teach them and have them uh, further their education. But if you didn't have what a rabbi thought you had to go on, if you weren't, they didn't think you were smart enough or have it in you, what you that was the end of your school at 15, and you went back to the family business and did what the family business was, which for these guys was fishing. And I say that to drive home the point that Jesus' first choice, his starting lineup, were these guys that were not considered the best of the best or the brightest of the brightest. 
They weren't picked because they had all the gifts or all the talents or all the abilities. Uh, and in fact, it was the opposite. Jesus took 12 average guys, started a revolution with them that would alter and transform history as we know it. I believe that Jesus tapped into something inside of these men that they did not even know was there. I mean, think about it. They were fishermen. They were taxed. That's all they had known. This is who I'm supposed to be. That's what mom and daddy were. That's what my brothers are. That's what my aunt and uncle are. This is my life. This is what I'm settled into. I'm, this is all there is for me. And Jesus comes along and says, no, there is so much more inside of you. And he tapped into something that they did not even know was there. And I believe that's what God wants to do. Some of you, you don't even know the potential that is lying dormant inside of you. And God wants to bring it out. We're going to go to today in a couple of places um, in the Bible. First one is going to be Matthew chapter 15. If you've got a Bible, you can turn with me. Uh, if not, I'm going to bring it up on the screens. But let me kind of catch you up to where we're going to jump in. Matthew 15 opens up with Jesus dealing with the Pharisees, the uh, religious teachers. They're asking him all these questions, trying to trip Jesus up. And, and they're asking questions like, hey, Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? That was one of the questions they asked. And Jesus pretty much lays a smack down on them and for lack of a better word, you know, he answers their question with a question, which is never good. And Jesus, after he does that, talks to them. He turns around to the rest of the people that are there, and he says this. These people, talking about the Pharisees, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, but their teachings are merely human rules. Hey, they look like they're worshiping God. They look like they're living it, but it's only lip service. I don't have their hearts. God doesn't have their hearts. Then he drops this on them, and he says this, What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. And I love that when you read this whole setup, the disciples, when they walk, they go to Jesus. Are you aware you offended them with your words? And Jesus is like, hey, they're blind guides. That's his words. They're, they're just blind guides. And after that confrontation, Jesus heals a woman that's got a demon, or this woman's demon-possessed daughter. Right after that is where we're going to dive in today. And this is a story. You don't even have to grow up in church to know this story, but stay with me. Matthew 15, starting with verse 29. Jesus left there, went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel, and this is setting up the miracle we're going to look at. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. Jesus is about to do a miracle. But get this, he's not about to do this great miracle to show off his power. He's not about to do this miracle so that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious teachers can go, oh, wow, did you see that? He tells the disciples, this is why I'm about to do what I'm about to do. Because 
I have compassion for them. The word compassion, when you look at the Greek word, it literally means my insides hurt for them. It hurts for them. I have compassion for them. See, here's the truth, Watts Bar Church. We can pray and pray as a church or as individuals for God to give us influence in our communities, at our work, at our schools, our neighborhoods. But the truth is this. While we want God to give us more influence, God is far more interested in giving us more compassion. Compassion for people. Who are the people that you genuinely care about? that it hurts your insides. And I'm not talking about family. I mean close-knit family. That's a given. I'm talking about people that just hurt a group of people that, man, my heart just hurts for them. And here's the thing. If you want to tap into the, un, the potential, that God potential that's inside you, the first thing you're going to have to do is this. Enlarge your circle. Enlarge it. You've heard me talk about this before if you've been here or been at one of our new to the bars. When God began to deal with Denise and I about coming back home to be pastors, we never really wanted to be pastors, period. We were music, uh, worship leaders, worship pastors. That was good. Our circle was small. I like small circles. And Denise said, Kelly, when I told her God was dealing with me about us coming back up to a pastor, she said, Kelly, you don't even like people. <laughs> and she was right. I was happy with the small group, my small circle that I had. I didn't want to enlarge it. And I knew that. And I said, okay, God, you're going to have to change something in me because I don't like people. I like the few people right here in my circle, but that's it. And God began to do a work in me. God began to give me compassion for people. God began, and if you knew me nine, ten years ago, you will know that I am not the same Kelly that I was then, that God has worked for me. God has changed some things in me. There are some of you here, your circle is so small, you barely fit into it. Come on. The first thing I believe God wants to do to be able to tap into and unleash our potential is enlarge our circles and give us more compassion for people, more love for people. Because let's be honest, this is a selfish world we live in. I mean, the number one type of picture that is taken every day is called a what? Selfie. What does that include? It includes you or one or two of your friends along with you because that's all our circle will hold. And we are a selfish. I'm telling you, selfishness has torn apart marriages. Selfishness has torn apart friendships. It's torn apart partnerships of a business. It has split churches down the middle. Selfishness has done those things. And one of the most common phrases, this is how selfish church people are. Well, there's several I could give you, but here's my favorite. One of the things that we, we love to say is this phrase, I'll be praying for you. Oh, I'll be lifting you up in prayer. Come on. What we're doing is we, and we'll walk away from that patting ourselves on the back because, well, I told them I was going to pray for them, and we think that, come on, that we've done our duty, and we don't need to do anything else. Because I told them I'm praying for them. But what did Jesus do in the story? He saw that he had compassion on them, but that's not enough. He acted on that compassion. He acted on the compassion. And Luke 9 
tells almost the exact same miracle. There's a couple of different things, but it's almost the exact same miracle, except this time the disciples are trying to get ahead of Jesus. They come to Jesus. Hey, you know, they're tired. They're worn out, which I can understand. They have been ministering alongside Jesus all day long. And it can wear you out if you've ever been part of ministry. And they are tired. They're worn out. They come to Jesus. They're not really concerned about the people. But they're like, hey, Jesus, Jesus, won't we shut this down early because the people are hungry. Let's send them away so they can get something to eat. And I love Jesus' response. He looks at them and says, why don't you give them something to eat? I mean, isn't that a little frustrating when you see a need? And you're like, Jesus, this is your wheelhouse. This is what you do. It'd be so much easier for you to step in and do it by yourself. Why you want to involve me? But isn't that why we want to do things? Jesus, you do it. You're, you're so much better than, at it than I am. Why, why, don't, why don't you take care of it? But what Jesus, cause, could Jesus have very well done the miracles without them? Absolutely. But Jesus is trying to unlock this untapped potential in them by giving them something so big to do that they think there is no way we can do this. Can I tell you that's what God will do? God will give you a dream, a goal, something in you that you're like, there's no way I need God every single day to step into this and help me with it. I'm telling you, I think it was Rick Warren that said this, if, if your dreams can be accomplished, if you can accomplish your dreams, they're not God dreams. A God dream is where God has to step in to help you see these dreams come to pass. I'm going to tell you this, the problems in our communities, the problems in our schools and our neighborhoods are too big for us to live small. Are you hearing me? The addiction rate, the divorce rate, the sex trafficking, the abortion rate, those things are too big for us to dream and live small lives. It's time for us, you and I, and this church to step in and begin to live the life that God has placed inside of us. This world needs us to begin to live that. So you've got to enlarge your circle. Because here's, here's the thing, guys. Kelly, why do I need compassion? Why do I need it for, for people? Do you know why I'm convinced the world has such a disdain and distaste for the church? Because the church for too long spoke truth without any love attached to it. Spoke truth. And then so what did we do? We went the opposite way and started speaking all love but no truth. Here's the thing why we got to have both love and truth. And we got to speak that truth in love. And we got to love people right where they're at, not where we think they ought to be. Because here's the thing people meet us before they meet Jesus. Are you hearing me? You're the first taste of whether they want to have anything to do with Jesus or not. That should mess with you when you're at the restaurant. And that waiter or waitress is not refilling your glass soon enough. And you want to get an attitude with her. Or you want to leave her a track as a tip. I would tell you what I think about you if you do that. Because I used to be a waiter. Sundays was the worst day for me to work. Because of church people. Come on. They meet you before they meet Jesus. Let's go on.
The second thing you got to do, own what you have. Own what you have. Jesus has compassion. He's moved to action. He doesn't want to send them away hungry. So what does he do? Uh, Verses 33. He says, you feed them. And they say, where can we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? That's an honest question. God, look, we're at shutting gap. Where are we going to find anything to feed these people? We may find moonshine, but we ain't going (laughs) to... Apparently, you've never been to Southern Gap. You don't know what I'm talking about now. Come on now. <laughs> we, we may find Stacy Harris out there hunting illegally, but where are we going to go? I wish he was here. But they're like, are you looking around? We're in the middle of nowhere. And then so Jesus says this. How many loaves do you have? The Bible says in this particular story, there were 4,000 men. That's not including the women and all the children that were there. And if you've heard me talk about this, you know most theologians estimate the people that were there, part of that miracle that day, was somewhere between fourteen to 20,000 people when you add up the women and the children that were there. God, we're, what do you mean how many loaves that we have? Even if all of us brought a lunch ourselves, it's not enough to feed these people. I mean, what do you, what, what do you mean? And, and I, see, I, I, we want Jesus to step in and say, hey, guys, guys, this is such a big problem and a big area. Sit back and let me handle it. Sit back and let me do it. And, 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 that's what, and they say, listen, we got seven loaves and only a few small fish. Why add the detail of small fish? Even if they had a few large fish, it's still not enough to, to meet the need, right? And it's like Jesus is pointing out their inadequacy, making them look at how little they really have. We do that. We come to Jesus, Jesus what do you have to give? Because basically Jesus said, what do you have to put on the table? What are you bringing to the table? And Jesus comes to us and we do that. We say, this is a, all I've got is this. I don't even have five loaves and two fish. I don't even have seven loaves and two fish. God, this is, this is all I've got, this small bit. God, that, that, that's it. And what God is trying to get the disciples to understand and what he wants us to understand is this. All that you have when given to God becomes more than you could ever imagine. See, what you place What you give to Jesus, what God has put inside of you, what you've been given, it is not small. It is not insignificant when it's placed in Jesus' hands. See, in Luke 5, they give Jesus the answer, except this time we only have five loaves and two fish. This is all we have. And we do that. We look at our abilities. We look at where we come from. We look at what God has placed inside of us. And we say, God, I've only got this. This is it. I... This is, I'm, I'm only educated this much, God. I only have a GD. I don't even have that, God. I, I don't have much money. I don't, have, I don't know much. I don't talk well. And when we say that, what we're doing is we're undermining and devaluing the very things God placed inside of us to be used for him. The reality is this. There are a lot of people in here today 
you would really like to do something great for God. You would really like to make a difference, make an impact where you live. But every time you come to God, you're like, God only has five loaves, small fish. I really do want to impact my school, but God, I don't come from a good family. God, I don't even know who my dad is. I really would like to make a difference, but God, I've been divorced this many times. I would really like to make a difference, but God, I've spent the past 20 years in addiction. Come on. I really would like to make a difference, but God, I don't even have a high school diploma. I'll tell you this. When God calls you and you begin to feel the promptings of God and you begin to see a glimpse of what God is calling you to be, you will always feel like you're not enough. Those that, they, those that show up to me feeling like they got what it takes and they, they know they're enough, I wonder what would happen and how they would feel if they actually stepped into the real world that God is calling them to be. Because when the big of God connects with how little and we see how little we are, we always feel small. And we always know only God, only God. I'm telling you, I know from a fact, the moment you step into what God is calling you to be or to do, you're going to feel like you don't have what it takes. You're going to feel like you don't have enough. You don't feel, you're going to feel like you don't look the part. You're not good enough. Listen to me, church. When you become overwhelmed by how little you have or by how, how, how little there is and, and how, big they, how big what God's calling you to do, and you go and say, God, here's all I have, but I'm giving it to you. When you do that, that's where God shines. I'm telling you, it's only when you own what you have that you can then give it to God. Jesus looks at the crowd and says, hey, sit down, and then verse 36. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. Something very interesting happens in that verse there. And, and I looked over, and in Luke, it happens again. And, and see, see if you I'm going to read Luke's, uh, uh, see, see if you can see what happens in the miracle. And he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. That right there is a miracle of itself. I can't get up 50 to 100 people to do the same thing, much less thousands of people to do, and they all sit down. Uh, but then here's the part. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, gave thanks, broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. Anybody catch what happened in both miracles? Here's what I've been taught growing up. Jesus fed the 5,000 plus Jesus fed the 4,000 plus. Jesus didn't. The disciples fed them. Both places, Jesus broke it, gave thanks, gave it to the disciples. The disciples went and fed the people with it. The disciples. In both situations, the disciples bring to Jesus all they have thinking it's not nearly enough. And in both situations, Jesus takes it, blesses it, breaks it, and it turns out to be more than enough. Because you read both of those stories, and in both of those stories, after it, all is said and done, the disciples are going around, and it says picking up basketfuls of leftovers. 
Come on, anybody getting this? Peter, James, John, Thomas, Andrew, the rest of the disciples, they were tired, they were worn out, they felt like they had nothing to give, and I know my leadership has felt like that at times, especially over the past years. But they like they're tired, they're worn out, but they walk away that day. Both occasions said, Guys, did you see that? We fed 5,000 plus people. We did that. And here's the thing. The people being fed, they didn't even know a miracle had actually taken place. They didn't know what was. All they knew was free food. But it was disciples that went up to Jesus and knew they were the ones that presented Jesus. That's all we have. Can you imagine? I'm going to start giving this out. I'm about out. No, I'm not. I'll give some more. And they saw the miracle right there before their eyes because they brought to Jesus, said, Jesus, this is all I have, but I'm giving it to you. I'm telling you guys, don't ever underestimate or the significance of what you have. Own what you have. I, I tell you, I'm convinced that everything you need to live, the life that, that you've always wanted to, the life that God has for you has been placed inside of you. It's just not been tapped into yet. Let's take it a step further. I believe everything you need to rise above the brokenness in your life, to break free from your past, to live out the God-sized dream for you, it's already inside of you. It's just going untapped. But until you bring to Jesus all that you have, you'll never realize what's really inside of you. There's a great story because we, we disconnect. We, 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 we're like, uh, say things are not that important or, or, or a little bit. There's a great story in the Old Testament. I love this story. And if you've never read your Bible, man, there are some great stories in the Bible. I'm talking that if the Bible were rated, it'd be at least NC-17. I mean, there are stories of rape, of murder. Of, this is one of those stories that I love. Uh, it's extremely violent. Uh, so, but the, it, let me give you the background. It's in Judges 3. The children of Israel have pretty much lost their mind again. They're going out just doing their own thing. They're worshiping idols. Uh, and they're, they, So God allows them to come under the reign of the rule of King Eglon, the king of Moab. And the king of Moab got the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join them. So they attacked Israel, captured Jericho. So for 18 long years, they suffer under the reign of King Eglon. And so Israel begins to cry out to God, God, save us, save us. Well, uh, God sends them a hero by the name of Ehud, Judge Ehud. And look at the details that they say about Ehud. One verse. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. Ehud may be the only Southpaw mentioned in the Bible. I'm not sure. But I have to believe that detail is there for a reason. I mean, you never know where to say. And David, a right-handed David, picked up his slingshot and killed the giant. No, but here he was a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The way he who delivers Israel 
telling you, it's, it's the stuff movies are made of. Uh, here's what happened. And I, I'm going to, this is the Bible, what it says. Uh, e, e who made for himself, he had this plan, so he makes for himself this double-edged sword that's roughly about 18 inches long. He puts it under his clothing. He's getting ready to go see the king. And, and they go in, him and a group, they go in to give king these honors, these things, and they're leaving. And then who tells him, he says, you go on ahead. I've got something I need to tell the king. Now, the, here's what the Bible says about King Moab, the, the king of Moab. He was a very fat man. That's the Bible's description of him. So here they, they leave. Ehud comes back, and he, and he says, King, I have something to tell you. Well, when the king stands up, he leans in to hear, hear what he has to say. Ehud takes out the sword, plunges it into uh, the king's. I mean, the Bible says that, that, the, that he sticks it in, that the handle actually goes in two and his bowels come gushing out and then the fat slumps over and covers up the wound. He just bleeds out without anybody knowing it. Great story, isn't it? Tell that to your kids before they go to bed at night. <laughs> Here's what I'm telling you that. Ehud became a legend and a great hero to the Benjamite people, so much so that the Benjamites began to work on ways of improving their weak hand because they wanted to be like the left-handed Ehud. They, they, they wanted to be, and, and because of that, these great warriors that were ambidextrous rose out of that. They could use their left hand just as good as their right hand, and it gave them a great advantage. Here's what Mark, or author Mark Batterson says about this. Most of us tend to ignore our non-dominant hands. Why bother when using your strong hand is so much easier, so much better? But how you handle your weak hand affects more than your present task. It affects the next generation. He goes on, Ehud didn't just deliver the Israelites from the Moabites. He inspired generations of Benjamites. His brave wasn't just their breakthrough. It became their signature story. Here's the point. Yes, we are gifted in certain ways, and we like to lean into those giftings. But I'm telling you, there are some weak spots in our lives, some weak things that we think aren't useful. But God wants to take some of those weak areas in our life and use them for a breakthrough in somebody else's life. Quit dismissing your weaknesses because it's in your weakness that the power of God is made strong. Let's get back to the miracle. Jesus takes these five loaves, two fish. What the disciples are certain isn't nearly enough, breaks it, gives it back to them overflowing. God wants to take what you think is not nearly enough. He wants to take your abilities, your talents, your passion, your education. He wants to take your hurts, your pains, your failures. He wants you to take those life experiences, the fear, the brokenness. And he's waiting for you to bring those things to him so that he can transform them into something great. See, Jesus could have done this miracle without the aid of the disciples. But he wanted them to see that inside of them, there was greatness. So what could you do, church? If you could just see yourselves as simply five loaves and two fish in the hands of God. 
What could you do if you simply took what you thought was not nearly enough and brought it to God and said, God, this is all I have, but it's yours. Third thing, stop living for yourself. See, God wants to do in things in you and through you, but not just for you. I forget, my dad used to quote this pastor, but he'd say, when God blesses you, he rarely has you in mind. Most of the time, he's using you as a conduit to bless somebody else. You want to untap and unlock all that God's placed inside of you. You got to stop living for yourselves and begin to live for others. There's some in here today and maybe even watching online. You're so talented, you're gifted, and you keep wondering, asking God, God, I've got all this talent, I've got all this ability, but why is nothing happening for me? Why am I not living out my purpose? Why am I not? Why am I so unfulfilled? And I'm convinced it's, he, the reason is this. We spend the majority of our lives, our talents, our passions, and our abilities pursuing our dreams, what we want, and not the God dreams that he's placed inside of us. The problem is we only want to receive and God cannot give you all that he has if you're just a receiver because then you just become a dam. It just takes in, takes in, takes in. And what God wants you to be is a river that flows with branches breaking off, with things breaking off and flowing to other directions, other people. Both stories end the same way. They ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up basketfuls of broken pieces. And while they ended the same way, they started the same way. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. What do you have? What are you bringing to the table? Both stories, we only have a few loaves, a couple of fish. That's all we have. Jesus, you see, you know it's not enough to do what needs to be done. Jesus says, in larger circles, Get outside the lines you've drawn for yourself. I'm talking about some of you have drawn racial lines. Get outside the circle. Some of you have drawn political lines. I saw it happen over this past election more than ever. And you've made your circle so small that anybody that even hinted they thought differently than you, they were closed outside that circle. Come on, that's not the church. That's religion. In a larger circle, own what you have. Quit giving God excuses as to why you can't do this or can't do this or say, this is all I have. Give to God what you do have and watch him take it and transform it. I'll close with this. Retired Navy SEAL. And marathon, marathon runner David Goggins in his memoir You Can't Hurt Me he shares this story and I love this story Goggins wanted to complete, compete in this grueling race called Badwater 
It's a race that only the best of the best, the elite athletes, could even qualify for. And one one of the things you had to do if you wanted to qualify for this race, you had to run 100 miles within 24 hours. That's a huge ask. 100 miles in less than 24 hours. Goggins did it. He was still injured, barely able to walk, and after running this 100-mile run, uh, and Goggins wanted to go support his wife and his mom who were running the Las Vegas Marathon. So he went out to Vegas with them, and this is his description of what happened that day. The three of us towed up with masses as the clock struck 7 a.m. Someone got on the mic and began the official countdown. 10, 9, 8. When it hit one, a horn sounded, and like Pavlov's dog, something clicked inside of me. I still don't know what it was. He said, perhaps I underestimated my competitive spirit. Maybe it was because I knew Navy SEALs were supposed to be the toughest people in the world. We're supposed to run on broken legs, fractured feet, or so that was the legend I bought into. Whatever it was, something triggered. And the last thing I remember seeing as the horn echoed down the street was the shock and concern on the faces of my wife and my mother as I charged down the boulevard, leaving them in the dust. With stress fractures in his feet and his medial tendons still wobbly after being wrapped in a special bandage just to stabilize his ankles. Goggins finishes the first mile in seven minutes and 10 seconds. Keeps running. He finishes the first 6.2 miles in 43 minutes. Keeps running. He gets to mile 13 and the official clock, he says, indicates that he is in the hunt to be able to qualify for the Boston Marathon, which is something he had always wanted to do. So he keeps running. In mile 18, he talks about hitting a wall. But he keeps running. Mile 22, he said, I'm off pace by 30 seconds, but I'm still in the race to qualify for the Boston Marathon. But the next four miles, I would have to run the best time yet. He finishes that marathon at just over three three hours and eight minutes. He qualifies for the Boston Marathon. And here's what I want you really to dig into today. Goggins writes that when he finished the marathon, even with the tendon sore and fractures at his feet, he said, I sat there on a patch of grass waiting for my wife and mom to finish. Coming to my mind was a simple question that I could not shake. What am I capable of? He says, SEAL training had pushed me to the brink several times, but whenever it beat me down, I popped up to take another pounding. That experience made me hard, but it also left me wanting more of the same. Just days before the Las Vegas Marathon, he had run that 100 miles in less than 24 hours. This day, he finishes the marathon at, at an elite runner's pace. Both of these things should not have been possible for him question that keeps coming back to him. What am I capable of? Goggins says this. He says, I couldn't answer that question. But as I looked around the finish line that day and I considered what I just accomplished, it became clear we are all leaving a lot on the table without even realizing it. 
we habitually settle for less than less than uh, less than our best at work, in school, in our relationships, and on the playing field or race course. And I would add that we habitually settle for less when it comes to our relationship with God. He said, if we settle for as individuals, then we teach our children to settle for less than their best. And all of that ripples out, merges, and multiplies within our communities and our society as a whole. He says, we're not talking about some bad weekend in Vegas or no more cash at the ATM kind of loss. In that moment, the cost of missing out on so much excellence is this eternally messed up world felt incalculable to me. He says, and it still does. I haven't stopped thinking about it since then. What are we leaving on the table? Since then, Goggins came up with this thing called the 40% rule. He says, most of us are probably only living our life at 40% of its potential. We regularly leave about 60% totally and completely undone. says this at the end in life almost nothing will turn out exactly as we hope there are always challenges and whether we are at work at school or feeling tested within our most intimate or of important relationships we will be tempted to walk away from commitments give up on our goals and dreams and sell our own happiness short at some point and it's at that point we have to remember we haven't tapped even half of the treasure buried deep within our minds, our hearts, and souls. We're all going to run into moments when we want to give up. We're all going to run into moments when we feel like we don't have enough to give. It's in those moments we have to do what the Apostle Paul said to his mentor, his mentee Timothy. Stir up the gift of God which is in you. Paul wrote this from a, from, from a prison cell, knowing he was about to be executed. And the one thing he wanted to remind Timothy, Timothy, you're going to come into some situations where you're worn out, you're tired, you've had enough of people, you've had enough of giving and giving and giving, or you're going to run out of time when you feel like you don't have what it takes. I need you to remember the day I laid my hands on you. 